many parts of the country, and the peasants have even murdered landowners and officials. I have heard there was some trouble, Lord Marston remarked. But as you've often said yourself, Ivan, Russia is a long way away. As he spoke, he remembered the prince's background and his houses in which he'd so often stayed. It was to conjure up such a very different way of life from his own in England, so that sometimes he thought he'd imagined the vast estates, the thousands of serfs bowing to the ground before their master, and the barbaric splendour of the prince's home which was muffled in heavy snow for many months of the year. It had seemed to him as a boy almost a kingdom on its own. There had been enormous buildings like a city belonging to one man, winter gardens where life-sized marble statues stood among a jungle of tropical plants, and to emphasise the extravagance of it all, floors of tessellated marble, quartz or lapis lazuli from the Siberian mines. Lord Marston had only to shut his eyes to see rooms painted in green, dark blue or crimson, filled with fantastic treasures, and to hear the crackling of the tall porcelain stoves which glowed by day and night. They were fed by logs brought in by relays of barefooted serfs, also tended the lamps and lit the hundreds of wax candles that burnt all over the house, in occupied and unoccupied rooms alike. Samovars, icons, vodka, caviar, violins, wild horses and even wilder riders were all part of the prince's background. It was all, Lord Marston had always thought, divorced from reality, and yet the magnificence of it did not detract from the personality of its owner. Extravagance was not a word the Russian aristocrats understood. An enamorata of a grand duke would travel in a sleigh festooned with emeralds. Palmer violets would be rushed from Grasse to prove the ducal affection was undiminished. Life was as easily expendable. Dueling was as frequent as a game of cards. Crazy feats of daring were attempted for a wager or for sheer devilry. Prince Ivan strode through the great rooms of his houses in the same way as he rode recklessly over the endless steps, bringing to everything his own vivacious, exotic charm. The only cloud in a sunlit sky where the prince was concerned was women. He had, of course, an irresistible attraction for them. But while he was often infatuated, and hunted them as another man might hunt with cunning and expertise a wild animal, once they were captured, he was bored. It was the chase which delighted him, not the kill and no sooner had a woman surrendered herself abjectly and completely to his demands, he was looking over her shoulder for another amatory adventure. "'I may inform you,' Lord Marston said now, "'that I am here officially, and you are not to involve me in any scandal. Otherwise I shall be severely wrapped over the knuckles, as I have been before.' "'We will behave with the utmost circumspection,' the prince promised in his deep, attractive voice. But his eyes were dancing, and Lord Marston, looking at him, exclaimed, Oh, Ivan, Ivan, you always get me into trouble. If I did not, you would become disgustingly stiff-necked and insular, the prince answered. Well, I have told you about Russia. What is new in Paris? Everything you can possibly imagine, Lord Marston replied. Do you wish to see the exhibition? Good God, no. What is the reason for it? Mostly political, Lord Marston answered. The French became very apprehensive after Prussia defeated Austria at the Battle of Sadova last year. What has that to do with an exhibition? the prince asked. The French army is in no condition to undertake a campaign against Prussia, so the emperor, Napoleon III, has decided he must keep Parisian goodwill by providing them with magnificent jubilee shows and court pageants. Prince Ivan laughed. Pagan weapons, he said scornfully. Exactly, his friend agreed. I intend to ignore both the exhibition and the court, the prince announced. What else can you offer me? The demi-monde? A female of the half-world? The prince raised his eyebrows. 
Is this another word for the courtesans, les expertes sciences, les femmes galantes, les grandes cocottes? Exactly, Lord Marston answered. It was invented some years ago by Dumas Fils to describe the world of the déclassé. He must have heard of his play. I suppose so, but I have forgotten about it, the prince answered. Then I'll explain, Lord Marston went on. In the second act, the hero explains the demi-monde to another man. He compares certain women to a basket of peaches where each fruit has a tiny flaw, and says, All the women around you have a fault in their past, a stain on their name. They have the same origins as society women, they have the same appearance and prejudices, but they no longer belong to society. They form what we call the demi-mondaine. It is an excellent description, the prince said. And let us, my dear Hugo, go and seek them out. I suppose La Paiva is still walking about wearing a king's ransom in jewels? Of course, Lord Marston replied. La Paiva, who usually displayed two million francs worth of diamonds, pearls and precious stones on her exquisite body.